Are we on, Simon? Just before we come to our subject today, I thought it'd be good to bring you up to date with regards to Liz and I's future. After much prayer and fasting over the prophetic words that we received during our sabbatical, and after seeking wise counsel, uh, we have a tremendous conviction that God's asking us to establish a ministry uh, to bless the wider church, not only in this nation, but in the nations. And during our time of prayer and fasting, uh, the Lord revealed to us what we should call the ministry, and it's going to be called Encounter Heart to Heart from the heart of God to the heart of God's people. We're in the process of bringing together and building a website, which is really exciting. We've just agreed to do an eight-day conference at Lee Abbey to launch their autumn program. Our ministry will be linked to stewardship, which helps and supports itinerant ministries. And a prerequisite for being part of stewardship was that you had to have a local church for accountability. So Liz and I asked the leadership if they would consider being a local church until we find a church in the future. And I'm delighted to say that they have agreed. And so even when we leave Kings, we'll be in partnership together until we find a local church. That will be incredibly difficult for Liz and I for two reasons. One, because we'll be looking for another King's Church, which will be very difficult. And two, if we're itinerant and doing lots of church weekends and leadership training and conferences, it will be difficult to get linked in and to get to know a local church and for them to get to know us. So we are so grateful to the eldership team for agreeing to partner with us until we find that spiritual home. Uh, Julian Dagnall, who's one of the elders, uh, he will be our point of reference to the elders and will be held accountable to them and to God as we begin this new chapter in our lives and in our ministries. We've had eight viewings for our house, but still no offers. And so we'd ask you to continue to stand with us and pray for us that we'll get a quick sale and we'll get a good price, not only for Liz and I, but for King's Church Amersham. But we are so grateful that Sunday after Sunday, you inquire, you ask, you pray for us, and we're indebted to God for you and for all your love and care at this time. Okay, we continue our series on generosity, and this morning, the good news is the subject is Generosity and Wealth, Part 2. Now, today we focus on Luke chapter 16 under the heading, The Unjust Steward. Now, most scholars will agree that this parable is one of the hardest, if not the hardest, to understand and apply because of two verses which we'll come to later. But if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke 16, if you have a Bible app, and let's read this together. 
Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job and I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm, I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. And so I will lose my job here when people welcome me into their houses. So he called each of his master's debtors and he asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. He then asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth... Who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I want to focus on four areas this morning. I want to focus on the disappointed master, then the disgraced manager, the hallmarks of a good steward, and then the rewards of a good steward. Let's look at the disappointed master. The master was disappointed for two reasons. First of all, because the manager betrayed his trust. The master had given full responsibility over running the estate to the manager. All the finance, all the buying and selling, all the hiring and firing, it was entrusted to the manager to do everything. But sadly, his trust was misplaced. And this man not only abused the master's trust, but he stole from him. He took something that didn't belong to him. He was deceitful and he was dishonest. You know, one of the greatest pains in life is when you feel betrayed. When trust has been broken. When you feel violated. When you feel used and abused, whether that's between a husband and a wife, a parent, a child, a brother, sister, employer, employee, or a friend to friend. The pain of betrayal goes deep. 
And God and God alone can bring healing to that pain and that memory through his extravagant grace. And I speak to you this morning not in a vacuum. I speak through experience. When our lovely daughter Hannah died in 2002, when she was almost 18, we received a letter two days after she died from one of her best friends within the church. And this is what she said. She said, if only you and Liz had the faith to believe that Hannah could be healed, she would be still alive. She says, and I want you to know it's not too late to go to the mortuary and call Hannah back to life. Unknown to her, Liz, her mum, had called Hannah back to life as soon as she died. Such was her passion and her love for Hannah. In faith, she called her back, but it wasn't to be. Can you imagine the pain that this letter caused? We felt so betrayed. We, we, we felt so hurt. And in the midst of all this pain and anguish, God spoke into our lives and he says, Paul, you need to deal with this issue if you're ever going to live the life that I've called you to live. And I will help you to do that. And I remember as if it was yesterday when we met this couple for the first time. And when I looked at her and remembered the letter, there was a release of extravagant grace and of love within my heart that brought healing to our relationships. God can deal with disappointments and discouragements. Secondly, he was disappointed because his reputation was tarnished. The master had heard through the grapevine that the manager was being dishonest. And that gossip through the actions of the manager affected the master's position and reputation within the community. You know, as Christians, we have a responsibility before God to honor and respect those that we work for. In fact, I believe that their reputation should be enhanced because of our attitude and work ethic. When Paul wrote to the early church in Ephesus, in the context of the workplace, he says this, Do whatever you do with all your heart as an act of worship. And as far as God is concerned, there is no difference between the secular and the spiritual. What we do in the workplace is as much an act of worship that we seek to present to God on a Sunday morning. This is what Rick Warren writes. Work becomes worship when you dedicate it to God and perform it with an awareness of his presence. You see, we should be an inspiration and a blessing to those that we work for and to those that we work with. 
Second area I want to focus on is the disgraced manager. Now, there are two characteristics here that I want to briefly highlight. First of all, he was selfish. He was looking after himself. He was looking after his own interest. He had little concern for his master and he had little concern for other people. It was all about him. It was about his wants. It was about his needs. You know what? As Christians, we have to be different. In the community, in the society, in the workplace, we have to be different. We have to be selfless. Paul writes to the early church and he inspired them and he encouraged them to live a life that was worthy of the gospel. And then he goes on to tell them how to do that. He says this, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. You want to live a life that's worthy of the gospel? Then you look to the interest of others. Selflessness, it goes against the culture. It goes against the grain. But that's how we're called to live. And that's how the early church was birthed. Second characteristic I want to highlight about the manager was his shrewdness. He thought to himself, I'm going to buy a job soon. And I'm not getting any younger. So I can't do the work that I used to do. And I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'll do. And so he called in each of the debtors and he says to them, how much do you owe the master? One says 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of oil. He says, quick, change the invoice to 450. He says to the next, how much do you owe? Oh, I own a thousand bushels of wheat. Quick, he says, change it to 800. And in so doing, he says, I will buy friends who will welcome me, who will help me, who will keep me in the days to come. Now, here's the dilemma and the tension between theologians. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager. And the issue which is debated is, is Jesus condoning dishonesty in this passage, in this situation? Surely not. For what it's worth, here's my thoughts. We need to read this statement in its context. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. In the context of this statement, Jesus makes a comparison between the people of this world, the people of this generation, and the people of light. 
in worldly terms, the master says, that was a smart move. You were on the ball. You had insight and foresight. You navigated this situation well. Deceitfully, but deceitfully well. You were ahead of the game. In worldly terms, the manager was focused on the here and now. In worldly terms, the manager was prepared to use and abuse people for his own gain. And then Jesus, in this context, makes this incredible statement. He says, the people of this generation, of this world, are more shrewd than the people of light. The word shrewd here has to do with judgment. It has to do with discernment. It has to do with decisions. Remember in Matthew 10, when Jesus sent out the 12 in mission, he said this, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of a snake, I think back to Genesis chapter 3. I think back to the enemy, the serpent who was in the Garden of Eden, who was deceitful and who was dishonest, who, had sh- who was shrewd but made bad judgments and wrong decisions. Surely Jesus is not asking the disciples as they go out in mission to do likewise. To be deceitful and to be dishonest. Surely God would not ask us to be shrewd in the way that we live our lives in deceitfulness and in dishonesty. I think the point of this passage is the complete opposite. Jesus says, that's how this world operates, this generation. But it's the complete opposite for those who are the children of light. We have to use our shrewdness to make wise decisions and good judgments. We have to be wiser. We have to be more insightful. We have to be more discerning about how we live our lives and how we make decisions and how we use our wealth before this crooked generation. It's how we use our shrewdness that's the issue. The manager used it to his own gain. He was focused on the here and now. But we who are the children of light, we have a different mindset. We have a different filter. We are sowing into eternity. Our decisions should always be seen in the light of eternity. Now we have another interesting verse here, verse 9. Make friends for yourself by means of your wealth, so that when it's gone, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, Jesus is not saying that you should use your wealth to buy friends and influence people. Oh, come and see how much I've got. 
Come and see what I possess. But what he is saying is this, that we should use our wealth wisely. We should use our time, our talents, our possession to bless others. And in so doing, you will befriend them for God and for his kingdom. And then when your wealth is gone, when your possessions are gone, when this life is ended... Just maybe they'll be there to welcome you into eternity. You see, I believe that some people will be in eternity because of a cup of coffee, a hospital visit, a conversation, a make-lunch meal, a dinner. People will be in heaven because we have used our wealth and our position and their possessions for the kingdom of God. One of my favorite verses is in Romans chapter 2 when we read this. And the kindness of God will lead to people's repentance. The kindness of God. How is the kindness of God seen? The kindness of God is seen through the people of God. The impact of an act of kindness can radically change someone's life and someone's eternal destiny. And back to uh, Barnstable, where I was ordained about three years ago to preach. And this chap came up at the end of the service and he looked at me and he said, "Uh, you don't remember me, do you? I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. He said to me, 25 years ago, I asked, could I speak to you about Christianity? And we met up for a coffee. He said, we then proceeded to meet on four different occasions, twice for coffee and twice for lunch. And then we never saw each other again. He said, I want you to know that just after that, I gave my life to Jesus. And he said, for the past 25 years, I've been serving God in Russia. You will never know the fruit that comes from a seed that's sown. You will never know who's going to be there to greet you in eternity. Because you've used your wealth and your possession and your gifting and your time for God. John Wesley once said this. I judge all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. What a filter. Thirdly, I want to focus on the hallmarks of being a good manager, being a good steward. Jesus in this passage highlights two. First of all, trust. Verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little will then be trusted with much. And it seems to me that the way we handle our money and our gifts and our jobs and our possessions qualifiers to be trusted with more. And God is looking for people that he can trust. Now, we don't want to be in a position of this manager who robbed his master, who took that which didn't belong to him. And being assured as a Christian, being a good manager, being a trustworthy steward, means that we give to God what belongs to him. The question, can we take something from God that doesn't belong to us, is yes. 
Let me read to you Malachi 3. God says, but you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there is no room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop the fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this is where I get to speak about tithing, which Liz and I are very passionate about. The tithe is 10% of what we earn. And we bring that to God as an act of worship to be used in his kingdom. Now, let me try and address some reasons why people don't tithe. It's not that they don't give, it's that they don't tithe. Some people say that tithing is under the law because it was given to Moses in Leviticus 27. They say, you know, we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. But we need to remember that Jesus came to fulfill the law. But we think that tithing was introduced through Moses. That is not true. Tithing was happening in Scripture 400 years before the law. In Genesis 14, we read these words. Then Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Now, Melchizedek was the great high priest. He represented God. So Abraham comes before Melchizedek as an act of worship. He gives him a tenth of everything that he owns. Hebrews, interestingly enough, tells us that there was no beginning or end with Melchizedek. And Melchizedek will remain a priest forever. And in Hebrews 5, we read these words, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Abraham brings his offering to Melchizedek. He brings a tenth of all that he has as an act of worship. And God sees the heart of Abraham. And he said, you know what, Abraham? I'm going to endorse that. I'm, I'm going to include that in the law. It's such a good and honoring thing to do. It's going to be part of the lifestyle of the people of God forever. So you have Abraham giving his tithe to Melchizedek. And Jesus... He's our Melchizedek. He's our high priest. So how much more should we bring a tenth of our offering to him as an act of worship? Now let me say here in passing, I believe that the storehouse where the tenth should be given should be the local church. And let me try and explain my reason behind that thinking. You would never go to the boot and slipper 
and have a three-course meal and then go to the metro lounge and pay the bill? Surely not. You actually give where you have received. You give where you've been fed. You give where you've been looked after. You give where your family and relationships. You give where your children have been cared for and nurtured and inspired. You give to help the family business to grow. You give to help and facilitate the vision that God's given to your local house. Now, some people believe that tithing is too much to give. It's, it's unreasonable. Well, it depends how you look at it. I look at it this way, that God says, Paul and Liz, I want to give you this, and I want you to steward it. I want you to give this 100%. And we say, thank you, Lord. We're so grateful for the house and the salary and the gifts and the time. Thank you, Lord. He said, under one condition, that you sow a tenth into my kingdom. Do you think that's unreasonable? Being a Scotsman, I think that's a good deal. (laughs) Now, if God was saying to me, here's 100%, Paul, but I'd like 90 back and you can keep 10. But he doesn't. He says, give a tenth into the storehouse. And it's a great privilege. It's a great honor to sow into the storehouse. David echoed that when he and the people were building the temple and we're building the kingdom here. David says, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give so generously as this because everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We're only giving you back what you've blessed us with. We're only trying to bless you because you have blessed us. And in addition, Malachi says to your tithe, you should give an offering. A free will offering that we'll have next week. An opportunity to give beyond your tithe. An opportunity to give where God directs, whether it's a metro bar or whether it's the boot and slipper. Just be open to God for God to prompt you to give generously. Let me share how that happened to Liz and I a few years ago. I've told this story before, so please forgive me. We were at Stoneley. We were at a Christian con- conference. And they said, we're going to have a special love offering for mission on the Friday evening. And we had gone to Stoneley because we're just about to go on a ministry trip to Brazil and we wanted God to bless us so that we would bless these people in Brazil. And so we went and after that evening session, Liz said, I think we should pray about how much should we give. And I said, yeah, I'm up for that. I want to be generous. So two days later, Liz said to me, has God said anything to you about how much we should give? I said, not yet. Has it to you? She said, yeah. She says, I think you should pray more. I said, okay. And so I did, I prayed, and I got nothing from God whatsoever. So it came the Friday morning, and I said to Liz, we just need to go with what God's prompted your heart with. What has God said to you? And she said to me, I feel God saying that we've to empty our bank balance. And I stood back, and I thought, are you serious? 
We're going to Brazil in two weeks and you want to empty the bank balance? And this is what she said to me. She said, well, that's the conviction I have in my heart. How many of you know, there's not much maneuvering when you use words like conviction. (laughs) So I was like, okay, right, let's go to the bank. So we went to the bank and we threw out all our money, everything. And uh, we went to the evening service and, and the offering was taken as part of the worship. And we're in this big tent. And literally, I had the money and I went right to the back of the tent. And I was thinking, Lord, it might be like Abraham. You asked him to sacrifice the son. But when he came to the point, he said, no, don't do it. I've seen your heart. And so uh, I'm dancing two steps forward, three back, thinking, I hope this chorus goes on a long time. And eventually, I was there before the offering. And we released that offering. In addition to our tithe, we released that offering for God. Two days before we went to Brazil, we had trebled the amount of money in our bank than we gave away. And we told nobody about what we gave away. Church, you've got to understand this. You can never, ever outgive God. And God is looking for stewards who can be trusted with wealth, who can be trusted with their tithes and their offerings. Reality is, when we rob God, we actually rob ourselves. We rob ourselves of the blessing that God has in store for us. Second hallmark for good steward is faithfulness. Being faithful. I don't know if you've ever had more than one boss at one time. When I was in the fire service, when I went on duty to a watch, uh, I could have three bosses. I had a leading hand, I had a sub-officer, and I had a station officer. And sometimes it became somewhat frustrating because all three could tell me what to do, but they didn't actually agree with what I should do. Verse 13, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't have two masters, two God. The adoration of one will feed contempt to the other. And I guess the main point of this passage, the main challenge of this passage, is where is the focus and commitment of your love, of your devotion, of your faithfulness, of your loyalty? Is it in the created? Is it in the wealth and the possessions? Or is it in the creator? What and who is the focus of our worship is very important. Paul writes to young Timothy and he says to them, Timothy, you be careful because in the last days, people will become lovers of money rather than lovers of God. God is looking for faithful and loving stewards. Bill Johnson writes this. 
Remember this. You can't serve God and money, but you can serve God with money. And we've got an opportunity to do that next Sunday as we take up this free will offering. Finally, my time is gone, but I briefly want to encourage you about the rewards that we'll receive for being a good steward. Revelation 22 says, Look, I am coming soon, says the Lord. My reward is with me, and I will give each person according to what they have done. There are many rewards, but for the sake of time, let me mention four to whet your appetite. First of all, there'll be increased joy. Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. There is coming a day when he will wipe away every tear, when he'll take away every sorrow, when he will mend every broken heart, and we will experience indescribable joy. Secondly, increased responsibility. Luke 19, well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. Now, I don't begin to understand what that might look like. But I can assure you of this, it will not be a burden, but a delight. Thirdly, increased authority, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life? Again, that's difficult to understand that in a coming day, we will judge angels. We have been raised with Christ, so we will reign with him in authority. And fourthly, there's an increased intimacy. 1 John 3, beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Revelation 22, 4 says, And they will see him face to face. And when we see him, we will be like him. And we will be with him forever and ever. This fact, and this fact alone, inspires and motivates my heart to be a good steward, to be a faithful servant, to be a passionate lover, to be a devoted follower, to be a generous and extravagant giver. Because one day I will stand before him and I will see him face to face. Sidlow Baxter, who's one of my great theological heroes said this he said you're no more like God than when you're given Liz says if I go before her she's going to have that on my gravestone because I've not only declared it to Liz but I declare it to her children and her grandchildren that you and I are no more like God than when we give. Let's be extravagant givers. 
let's be outrageous in our generosity. Let's just bow our heads and our hearts for a moment as we just consider God's word.